Well, Jesus has addressed us already uh, through the reading of his holy word and particularly uh, the red letters uh, from Revelation. This is Christ addressing his church. Uh, and just to confirm, first service, this is the one that isn't live streamed, right? This is not recorded? Guys, let me tell you something about Armando. <laughs> I am... So I am in a, a seminary cohort um, with uh, myself, Armando Phils is in it, and there's also, you know, like 25 other, uh, you know, pastors and leaders. And we, we have a professor, and we, we learn from him, and it's, uh, it's really good. This kind of like interactive class discussion that kind of dominates uh, much of our, our time together. And since this isn't being recorded... Some people just talk way too much, and there's, there's like three, like the, the three wise men, you know, who are always like, well, excuse me, professor, um, and they're always like saying things, or well, you know, the way I look at it is, da, 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 da. and they talk so much. Armando is like this like silent sage, and, and he will contribute a thought like once per day. And it always is just the absolute best out of, out of the whole class. I think he's experienced far more life. He's, uh, you know, started more churches and lived longer and suffered more and seen just kind of like the faithfulness of God. And um, I just love knowing him, uh, learning from him, and just want to say you guys are, uh, yeah, blessed to have him as um, your pastor, teacher, uh, carer. So just want to say that. Speaking of voices that you should listen to, Revelation chapter 2 is the words of Jesus. See how I did that? <laughs> Great segue. I'm, I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying. Um, all right. I've got a, a slide, and if it comes up, it's a picture of a group. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's us. Hey, that's my family. Um, so my wife and kids, they're coming to second service. And um, just wanted to give a shout out to my better half and our heirs uh, that are coming. That's my wife, Rachel. Um, she and I were both born and raised in Fallbrook. And then those are our three kids, uh, Rosie, Owen, and Finn. They've been born and raised in Ireland, which is where we've lived for the past 19 years. Um, I serve as a yeah, pastor of a, of a church there. And I get to talk here. All right. Now, the next picture is a group of... Charlie Chaplin impersonators. Now, maybe you know Charlie Chaplin. He was the silent film actor from Hollywood. Uh, he was, I think he kind of was rose to prominence at the very end of the era of history when men could have a little square mustache right here and get away with it. Um, they suddenly became totally out of fashion immediately after uh, Charlie Chaplin. But um, in, here's something you should know about him. Once he came in fourth place in a Charlie Chaplin lookalike contest, um, apparently uh, the judges of that competition, they looked at everybody and they thought there was three other people who did a better job of capturing the essence of Charlie Chaplin than he himself. Uh, Newsweek wrote about this. It says that in 1975, several years before his death, Chaplin entered a lookalike contest of himself in France. He probably thought that he was a shoe-in for the prize, and everyone would have a hearty laugh at the end, but he actually came in fourth. So the judges were wrong. Nobody is more qualified 
to be crowned in a lookalike contest of himself than him himself. So there was the outer appearance of other people that looked more like him, but yet the inner reality is he is who he was, no matter what an outside external judge had to say about that. We're going to look a little bit into that theme in these verses from Revelation chapter 2 of outer appearance versus inner reality. And to briefly introduce you to the the context or the genre of what we're looking at, uh, the resurrected Jesus um, dictated these seven messages or edicts from his divine royal mouth uh, to groups of small churches um, that are scattered throughout what we know now as Turkey or what was known then as Asia Minor. Ephesus was the first of seven Uh, churches that received letters of correction and commendation, of encouragement and warning from Jesus himself. I think it's a good thing for us to consider on the last Sunday of the first month of the new year, uh, as we're maybe still in a little bit of a self-reflective mode, to wonder what would Jesus say if he were to walk into Servants Church? Uh, What are the sort of things that he would love and give the divine thumbs up to? Uh, What are the sort of things that would cause him to take a step back and say, whoa, that's not what we're about in the kingdom of God. Uh, Each of these letters has a similar pattern. I'll briefly go through it. Uh, Jesus identifies himself in those first verses, and you heard Larry read that. And then, and there's an, an outline that might be the next slide, Jesus commends the church. He tells them that they're doing at least one thing right, and he encourages them for it. Then he confronts the church, because each church is doing at least one thing wrong, and he calls them on it. And Jesus counsels the church. He tells them what they need to do in order to get right, and he also warns them what will take place if they refuse to, And he encourages them or offers what will take place if they follow his commands. And each one ends with this saying, let him who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, as I mentioned, what would Jesus say if he was the honored guest of Servants Church? What would be the things that he commends and confronts, and how would he counsel us? Of course, this is true to the church community. But of course, what is a church community but a group of individuals? And so these are questions for us to ask, self-assessing our own hearts and lives as well. I don't know about you, but when I was little, I learned that the church is not a building. The church is not a steeple. The church is certainly not a resting place. The church is the people, right? I am the church. You are the church. We are the church together. All who follow Jesus all around the world, yes, we're the church together. So hear this as an assessment of the church community you're part of, but then also consider this as a January check-in on your own heart and life. With that in mind, I'll briefly pray, and then we'll get to work. Lord Jesus, we have heard your word already. It's been read to us clearly and profoundly. Uh, We've been able to sing and be guided in prayer, um, but Lord, I pray afresh for this moment of our time together, 
uh, as your word is opened, uh, before we approach the communion table, I pray that our ears would be open to what the Spirit is saying to this church and these collection of women and men. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So Christ has things to affirm, and he has things to challenge, and that should not surprise us. I like how Nancy Guthrie comments on Christ's words throughout Revelation, and of course Christ's words everywhere. She says this, Jesus knows everything, the good and the bad, the commendable and the contemptible. He knows what needs to be encouraged and affirmed, and he knows what needs to be confronted and condemned. So if we're going to have a relationship with the real Jesus, we're going to see that he's not tame, he's not our buddy, he's not our little affirmation friend. There's things that he sees that he loves, and there's also things that the real Jesus would correct us on as well. And this is true for every church and every individual. As we, I'm going to quote Charles Spurgeon next. He says, if you wait for the perfect church, though, you might wait until you get to heaven. So every church has a collection of problems, including this one. Every church member has a collection of problems, including this one and the one who's sitting in your seat. Um, so put yourself in a posture of like humility. Open yourself up for these next few minutes. Be like, this is not only correcting a church there and then, but maybe... Jesus has something to say to me here and now. Uh, one of my early jobs that I had, I worked at, a, at Big Five Sporting Goods in Marietta. And I, I was not selling basketballs or sports equipment. I was in the shoe salesman uh, department. So I was selling shoes from a very young age. And oftentimes I'd find myself kneeling down in front of a potential customer and sliding a shoe onto the foot. So it was like, like Cinderella, you know? And I'm like, I'm putting the shoe on people. And people are wondering, does this shoe fit? Does the shoe fit? And, you know, in the industry, we had a saying, if the shoe fits wear it, you know? And so allow yourself to think, hey, this is about there and then, but this also is about here and now. Does this shoe fit? And if so, should I wear it? And then should I take Jesus's counsel? All right, the people who originally received this letter, it was the Christian church in the ancient city of Ephesus. And here's the problem. We know a lot about Ephesus. Ephesus features very heavily in the New Testament. Let me give you a brief overview of who they are, and then we'll learn a little bit more about what Christ says to them and to us. We can learn about them in Acts chapter 18 and 19 and 20. Those chapters are all set in part or in whole in Ephesus. We learn about Apollos' evangelistic ministry there. He was well-intentioned but ill-informed about the gospel that he was communicating. And then along came this like dynamic duo of Aquila and Priscilla. They helped him to understand the way of Jesus more clearly. Then Paul the Apostle came, and he set up shop there. He was there for more than two years, which is, as far as I know, the longest time that he invested into a single city. Eventually, there was a riot that kicked off, and then shortly after, he left. In Acts chapter 20, he kind of does a little pastor's conference for the leaders of the Ephesian church. We see that there's a, a group of elders who are responsible for the church, and Paul encourages them to be on the lookout against false teaching. Later on, we're introduced to another of the leaders of Ephesus. He was a young leader named Timothy. Paul wrote Timothy once and then again. 
And guess what those books are called? First and Second Timothy, right. And, and he wrote to him to give him advice and encouragement about pastoring the church in Ephesus. He said to him, remain in Ephesus. So he's there looking after this, this church. And then later on, Paul wrote a letter to the Ephesians. Guess what that's called? Ephesians. And then church history tells us that the Apostle John eventually moved to Ephesus and lived out his years there as a prominent voice in the church. So again, Ephesus had like this all-star lineup of teachers. Every famous preacher in the New Testament has spoken there or lived there, and now the most famous, Jesus himself, is addressing them right there. The city that they were living in was like 200 to 300,000 people. It's a wealthy place. It was the home of the temple of Artemis. Um, it was like one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And the church that was planted there was outflanked and outnumbered. The, the, the wealthy and the powerful and the religious-minded all had nothing to do with this small little church that was meeting in a rented school hall in the city of Ephesus. However, the power of the gospel was there. What a reminder that it's not about who has the biggest budget or building or anything like that, but the power of Christ was there and they had a powerful evangelistic ministry. Side note, it seems that many of the other churches in the book of Revelation chapter 2 and 3 are churches that were started from evangelists that came out of Ephesus over to these other regions. Acts chapter 19 verse 9, there's a slide that says this, he withdrew from them, Paul, and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. This church thrived for like four decades. Unbelievable spiritual leadership, as I already mentioned. Everything was great. Even there was like spiritual power. Acts chapter 19 speaks about unusual miracles that were taking place in the city of Ephesus. People that were being oppressed by demons were having like remarkable freedom from demonic power. Everything looks great on paper. Have you heard that phrase? It all looks great on paper. Uh, maybe there's a, a job that you sign up for or that you get recruited to, and it looks great on paper, but then the actual culture of the place is different. Uh, maybe there's a, I don't know, who does online dating? Maybe someone has an online dating profile. Looks great on paper, and then you meet them. Things can look great on paper. A person can look healthy, but inside there can be a deadly, invisible illness. Jesus speaks to them about how the fact that although things look good on the outside, there's something dangerous on the inside. So first, the Lord who's speaking. Verse 1 and 2, Jesus describes himself as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the candlesticks. This is this imagery that John is using to describe how Jesus is present among the church. We were singing a song just a few moments ago speaking about how you're the breath in my lungs, talking about the, the imminence or the closeness of God to us individually and per, um, personally. Now, this image is even saying that as we gather together in our names, in his name, he's present among us. He's walking amongst the candlesticks. Also, he's holding the stars in his strong right hand. 
I don't have time for all the imagery, but this is idea of like holding up the church leadership himself. And he has good things to say to them. The Lord commends them for a few different things. So the Lord commends them, and there's three things that he commends them for. And guess what? They all start with D, because I'm a preacher after all. I have to do this. So, and there's a, a slide, I think, that has a commendation, and then the three things that start with D, duty, doctrine, and determination. Duty. The Ephesian Christians did a lot of stuff. They were busy. Jesus says to them, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. Their announcement time on Sunday morning would have even more events than what you guys have. There'd be stuff for the Valentine's dinner, there'd be the singles ministry, there'd be this and there'd be that, there'd be other things and opportunities to serve, there'd be the evangelistic outreach, there'd be this and that. They're doing a lot of things. Their doctrine is also good. He says to them, you can't bear what's evil. They would vet and test and confirm those that are looking for positions of influence or for power or for who wanted access to the pulpit. He says this, I know that you cannot bear those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be false. The church was especially vigilant against what's called the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. We're not going to get into the specifics of that. It was a, a false teaching that actually was wholeheartedly embraced by the church of Thyatira a few, a few verses later on. Some churches were gullible and fell for it. The Ephesians were like, nope, that does not line up with God's holy word, and we reject that. They didn't let the surrounding culture determine what they believed, nor impressive, influential, spiritual influencers like the Nicolaitans. They said, nope, doesn't line up with God's word, get out of here. They're a scripture-defined church. And also, they're determined. They haven't become weary. Did you see that in verse 2? Jesus says to them, I know your patient endurance. Then later on, I know that you have endured patiently and that you are bearing up for my, sake, my name's sake and that you have not grown weary. They're, they're persevering. They're like the ultra-marathoners of the church. They just keep going and going. They're like the, the Duracell bunny. They never give up. They always have the capacity to hold on for a little bit longer or to bear a little bit more weight. They don't give up in the face of difficulty. So they're hardworking. They're persevering. They're discerning. They willfully endure hardships and persecution. They had steel in their spine and iron in their blood. They had a love for the truth. They had deep convictions about what they believed. In a culture that was antagonistic and actually literally pagan, they stood strong and they didn't yield. They're like an island of good doctrine in a sea of apostasy. The people in Ephesus they seemed like amazing. They're battle-tested. They're Bible people, a bastion of orthodoxy. They're a busy church with high spiritual standards. They look good on paper. The doctrine is spot on. But remember, Jesus can see what no one else can see. There's like this string of unbroken commendation, but it's broken 
by one three-letter word. What's that word? Three letters. But. Or another three-letter word, yet. Or, if you're reading the KJV, nevertheless. <laughs> but all of those things, <clears throat> when anyone gives you a compliment and then says, but. Hey, you're looking great this Sunday morning. Your outfit is spot on. But did you brush your teeth this morning? <laughs> or, or anything like that. So Jesus says all these good things, and then he says, but, or yet, or nevertheless, I have this against you. This brings us into our next section. The Lord's complaint. I hold this against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. They had their doctrine down, but they had no devotion. Thyatira, later on, if you keep on reading, you'll see that they had devotion down, but bad doctrine. But not so for these. Ephesus is a busy, successful church, but it seems like they're not actually close with the God that they believe in. They could defend the truth about God all day long, but it seems as if they're not spending personal time with God. So it says, you've left the love that you had at first. Let me tell you this. I've always understood this to be that they don't love God as much as they used to. Now, I've been checking out other commentaries and learning from scholars about this, and guess what I learned? It's actually kind of divided. Uh, some scholars agree with me, they're the right ones. And other scholars would say, well, abandoning the, the first love, that's love for one another. That's like the human love, love for the neighbor and then love for the brethren. They're saying that maybe he's saying you used to love your neighbors, but now you don't anymore. And then other scholars say, no, no, this is, the first love is God, but their love for God has grown cold. Guys, maybe it's both. I don't know. <laughs> maybe it's both. Because didn't Jesus himself say, he was asked once, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, well, it's actually kind of two in one. The first commandment is love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. You love your neighbor as yourself. So I'm going to say maybe it's both. Maybe they had this unwavering effort and labor and they sweat and they have doctrinal purity, but their love for God or for others or both had grown cold. It's, it's like doubly tragic because when you consider the last words of the Ephesian epistle, uh, there's a slide, and it's Ephesians chapter 6, verse 24. This is the end. This is the last word the Apostle Paul wrote them. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Or the NIV says this, grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. And so we just fast forward a few years, and Jesus himself steps down from heaven to dictate a letter, and he says this, your love's become corrupted, or your love has died. This is important for you guys. Uh, for, were you here last Sunday? <laughs> Did you hear kind of the, the emphasis about, um, what is it from Thessalonians, you know, your, your work of faith? and your labor of love. This matters. It matters to Jesus a lot. Now, um, 
I'm visiting California from Ireland, and I, I love it here. You guys have, like, warmth in January? This is unheard of. <laughs> so I love being warm. Um, I'm, I'm wearing a flannel here, not because I need to, but just because it's polite, <laughs> you know? <laughs> to wear the, anyway, I, have, I was born with some, like, genetic issue um, where, like, my circulation isn't that great in my hands and my feet. Um, I actually, like, uh, asked a doctor about it. This is a long time ago. And uh, it's something called Raynaud's syndrome. And um, I was like, oh, and then I went home and I Googled it. Turns out it's very popular with elderly British women. <laughs> um, that's, what, that's what the internet tells me. Anyway, it just means that like my hands, when they get cold, they, like, they turn colors and like, they, they go kind of numb. So anyway, uh, yeah, and I chose to live in the cold. You know. <laughs> and, and there's a saying. It's an Irish saying. Maybe you've heard it too. I don't know. I've never heard it here. Um, but sometimes you'd, you'd reach out to shake someone's hand, and, and my hand would be like it's kind of the frigid dead white, <laughs> and, and they shake my hands, and my hands are really cold, and they would say this, I, I get this all the time, they say, oh, cold hands, warm hearts, oh, they say it here too? Okay. I've never been cold until I lived over there, so, yeah, so, cold hands, warm heart, and I'm like, I hope so. I think the Ephesians have that, the opposite condition, because they have warm hands, from constant activity, but a cold heart from having left their first love. Or we could kind of switch the analogy. Maybe they have calloused hands from working so hard, but then also a calloused heart. Maybe from being burned, maybe they're, they're playing it safe, maybe they're not getting their emotions involved too much anymore, but it's a calloused hands and a calloused heart. Allow me to read you from... Professor Jeremy Wyma. He says, We have noted several times how the commendation reveals the passion of the Ephesian church for the truth. While its commitment to orthodoxy is a virtue for which the Ephesian church is praised by Christ, it's also apparently a vice of this congregation. What's true of people can also be true of churches. Their greatest strength can paradoxically become their greatest weakness. The Ephesian church was so preoccupied with identifying wicked people, exposing false apostles, and rejecting sinful practices that a spirit of suspicion and mistrust permeated their fellowship, making it impossible for them to be the caring, compassionate community they'd been in the past. In short, they were a church of loveless orthodoxy. Loveless orthodoxy. That bothers Jesus. It's possible to do a lot for God and completely be devoid of passion for God. Or it's possible, and maybe some of you are of this orientation, it's possible to do a lot for other people but have your heart not be into it. It's not done as an act of love. Some, have, some actions can just be like the relics of a rusty faith, or it could be absent-mindedly doing the right thing out of obligation rather than truly being internally motivated by love. Uh, there's a, a quote from Danny Aiken. He says this, Labor is no substitute for love. Moral and doctrinal purity is no substitute for passion, and deeds are no substitute for devotion. 
Or to bring it even more close, uh, next, let's hear from Oswald Chambers. He says this, Beware of anything that competes with loyalty to Jesus Christ. I hate this part. The greatest competitor of devotion to Jesus is service for him. So I'm speaking to those of you that volunteer for things, those of you that are on rotas, those of you that, that get involved in the life of, of Servants Church. Uh, just, just know God could send an angel from heaven to do your job. He doesn't need you as an employee. He's looking for your heart, not for your time. He, he's looking for a heart that's close towards him, that's seeking after him, rather than somebody who's going to clock in and clock out. It's an ongoing challenge for all who serve and for all who are involved. So the safe thing is just to never volunteer. No, <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. Remember when Jesus had that one-on-one -on -one conversation with Peter after Peter's uh, denial and um, eventual, the process of him being restored was Jesus gathering him by the sea and he spoke to him, and, and then he asked him three times in a row, hey, Peter, will you do jobs for me? Hey, Peter, will you serve in the kids' ministry for me? Hey, hey Peter, will you be nice to everybody for me? No. What he says to him three times is, do you love me? So more than just the deeds performed is the position of the heart. So how serious is this, this lack of love in Verse 5, Jesus is saying, if, if you don't fix this, Ephesian church, I'm going to remove the lampstand, which is kind of code word or revelation speak for, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come down there myself, and I'm going to shut your church down. I'm going to turn off the lights. You're done. In a city like Ephesus, which, as I mentioned, is just so overrun by paganism. Don't you think they really could have used a church like the Ephesians? Why is Jesus going to shut them down if the city needs them? Well, I would say a hardworking, truth-defending, doctrinally pure, persevering church without an authentic love for Jesus and their neighbors, actually can do more harm than good. Actually can, like, not be a positive impact for the gospel. It could actually become a deterrent for the gospel. It can be like an inoculation against the power of the gospel. It can be, first service I can say it, you could be a vaccination, you know? Like, just like a little bit not enough to actually change somebody, but to, to help develop antibodies against it. You know, um, but so that's, it's like a, a little bit of Jesus Jr. or gospel light. It's like, well, they're saying all the right things, but they're not showing any love at all. And it can cause those who are under the influence of Servants Church Ephesus or Calvary Ephesus, it can cause them to say, oh yeah, well, I tried Christianity. It was loveless. They said all, they had all their ducks in a row, but like they didn't care for me or anybody else. I tried it. It didn't work. What's next? And Jesus says, I'm going to shut you down 
so that you don't continue to exist inoculating people against the power of the gospel. If there's a bunch of slick programs but no love, it's nothing but just like an empty husk. It's, it's like a whitewashed tomb, Jesus would say. He said in John 13, he gives a new commandment to love one another. And by this, all will know that we're truly his disciples. John, 1 John 4 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Seems like Jesus cares too much about the watching world to let this poor example of unrepentant, unloving Christianity to continue to exist in Ephesus. He's like, I love Ephesus too much to let you continue on like this. So we've seen his commendation. Good job, guys. We've seen his correction. Bad job, guys. <laughs> and then now we have his like open hand of counsel, where he's like, all right, come on, grab my hand. Let's get better. How are we going to get out of this? And that's in verse 5. What should they do if they want to keep the doors of their church open? If they want the lampstand to remain, what do they got to do? Verse 5, remember therefore where you have fallen, repent, and do the work you did at first. If not, I will come and remove its lampstand from your place, unless you repent. Two things, remember and repent. See, they're both there in verse 5. I'm not making this up, guys. It's, 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 like, it's right there. It's literally right there. Remember. He's saying, like, like, think back. Let your mind wander to what it was like when they first experienced the goodness of God in Christ. Um, like, revisit the memory banks. Jesus is like, it's like he's sitting with them, and he's playing the role of a, of a marriage counselor. There's, a, there's this a husband and wife, and they're in trouble. And so they, they, they sit down with the marriage counselor, and, and he looks at them and says, why don't you tell me about when you first started dating? What was it like when you, be, when you fell in love with each other? And, and guys, I, I've, I've been there. I've been the marriage counselor, and I've seen the, the awkward, well, it was great. You know? and, and people kind of recall how things used to be. I remember when I first started dating uh, my wife. I was uh, living here in, in Fallbrook, talking on the phone late into the night. And I don't know if you guys, you guys remember long distance calls? Now phone calls are like cheap and you can have video and it's free. Um, in my day, it was, uh, well, okay. Rachel lived in Rainbow, but she lived on the, the other side of the Riverside border. Like just, so she was like technically long distance. So it was 10 cents a minute to call her. And that doesn't matter. We're in love. And my dad pays the bill. So. <laughs> no, I paid some of it. Um, and so the longest, most asinine, unnecessary, irrelevant conversations would take place. And then oftentimes they would end with, a, I don't want to hang up first. You hang up first. Oh, no, you hang up first. Oh, no, tell me more. And then, and then, yeah, what did you have for breakfast? Okay, all right, well, I'll see you tomorrow. Anyway, so just these long, unending conversations. And, you know, many couples have stories like this. And there is that kind of like once-in-a-lifetime excitement of a new relationship when everything is new. 
It's the first time that you do such and such. It's your, your first time holding hands. The first time when someone says that they love the other person. All these things, they're only new once, and they're never going to be new again. But I think there's like an investment that we make into kind of continuing on in that type of commitment, even if there's not the excitement of, oh, this is the first time it's ever happened. But this can take place in our spiritual lives as well. We're invited again and again to experience those like opening truths of our meeting with Jesus. The, the beauty of the cross and the empty tomb, we can become accustomed to it, thoughtlessly speak of those words, no more awe, no more wonder. It's just like a business partnership or, well, I'm a sinner and you're a savior. That's just kind of, kind of what we do. You know, people could ask, like, okay, hey, Mike, when did you become a Christian? And I could have a couple different answers. Um, I can say I became a Christian on a Friday afternoon on a hill outside of Jerusalem when Jesus Christ died for me. Or I could say, well, I became a Christian when I was five years old in my parents' house, and I knelt down, and my mom led me in the sinner's prayer. And what, what little I knew of myself, I offered to what little I knew about God. Or I could say in, like, the early months of the year 2000, as there was kind of this, like, revival that was kind of sweeping across uh, Fallbrook High School, and uh, myself and others were just kind of, like, swept into an enthusiasm for the kingdom that, that hasn't ended yet. And so I, I can think of, like, those types of moments and then just think, like, what's it like to, to encounter Christ for the first time? Or to think of the events that saved me in the first place. Jesus Christ absorbed the wrath of God for me and took my sin into the grave and he emerged triumphant out of it and, and pulled me out of death and into a brand new life. When I think about those early moments of, of Christianity, oh, I get excited. But when I think about just the duty and doctrine and commitments, oh boy, I get tired. So I'm inviting you to those opening moments to remember the beginning of that relationship. He wants us to remember, not just for nostalgia's sake, he wants us to remember so that we can repent. What does repent mean? Well, it's a, a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. Think of the prodigal son, a story Jesus told that really illustrates the, the principle of repentance quite well. Uh, the repentance of the prodigal was preceded by his remembering of how good he used to have it. As he's, as he's like maneuvering to kind of get the pig's food first before the pigs gobble it up, it says that he remembers what it was like in his father's house. And then he repented. He changed his mind and changed his actions. Jesus isn't telling them to repent of some like obvious immorality. That's easy. That's the easiest kind of repentance where, you know, where it's like, Hey, stop robbing banks, you know? <laughs> hey, stop clubbing baby seals, you know? Um, but he's actually not... Sorry if anyone's like a baby seal enthusiast. <laughs> um, he, he's saying, like, it's not the outer behavior. I'm actually going for your heart, and, and I want you to have like this inflamed love for me once again. Because we can attend a good church... We can even volunteer at this church. We can give money regularly. You can give more than the next person. Uh, you can do all of these things, and we think, well, I'm just crushing it in the Christian life. This is it. I, show, I come to the first service. I don't sleep in like those sinful second service people. I'm doing great. 
but without a, a true and honor, love for the Lord, then it's a, a sham, he says. So, so this morning, some of us maybe need to repent of our apathy towards God. Uh, maybe some of us need to repent for our lack of love for other people. Because there's kind of this lie that we believe that, like, well, I can love God, but I don't have to care about people. He actually joins them together. And what God has joined together, let not man separate. So repentance is not a bad word. It's actually a wonderful invitation to a fresh start. It means that you and nobody is doomed. Repentance is beautiful because it means that we can change our minds, change our actions, and enter into the blessings that Christ has for us. It's the beginning of a new beginning. So you're invited to remember and repent. This ends with the same refrain, let him who has an ear to hear, let him hear. So the question is like, are you hearing? I'm glad that you came, but are you hearing? And we sang this song earlier that says, show me who you are, fill me with your heart, and lead me in your love to those around me. That was a prayer that you were kind of led in earlier on through a song, and and maybe God's answering this prayer right now by bringing me here to remind you of those opening moments of relationship with Christ, and then also inviting you to repent, to, to keep that fresh in our minds and our hearts, that we can have not just an outer husk of spirituality, but true, vital love for God and for others. Jesus says to them, those people, you're doing all the good things. Nevertheless, you've left your first love. I don't pretend to know what he's saying to us today or to this congregation, but for some of us, there's got to be some remembering so that remembrance can lead to some repentance as well. And I can't think of a better ordinance from the Lord to kind of lead us into repentance than, than the Lord's Supper itself. Um, Armando told me before I got up here that he's going to lead communion, and so this can be a wonderful time for us to reflect, to remember, and for some perhaps to repent. I'll pray. Lord, in your commendation of the Ephesians, there's things that I see in this church that are, are wonderful and that are commendable.